Thessalonians 5, verses 12 to 22. This is God's word. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to, the, to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. And we thank God for his word as it still speaks to us today. I really sense that the Lord wants to renew our spirits this morning. Nothing that I can say will do that. It's only by him and his spirit. And so I'm just going to pray for us this morning, if that's okay. Yeah, Father, come. Come and meet us this morning. Thank you for this time around your word. Would you transform us? Would you stir us? Would you challenge us so that we may become more like you and that we may glorify you, Jesus? And if you will, take a moment and pray for yourself that the Lord would speak to you this morning. And then if you could pray for me, that I would be helpful as the Lord speaks and guides me. Jesus, we love you. We commit this time to you. Amen. So this morning we get an insight into the church in Thessalonica through Paul's letter. And if you remember, which you probably don't because we read Acts 17 back in March, that Paul, along with Silas and Timothy, established the church in Thessalonica. Thessalonica is a thriving seaport of approximately 200,000 people. So imagine Port Rush in the summer months, right? And mostly, they're mostly Gentiles. And so um, when this church, when news of this church that proclaimed Jesus Christ as a true risen king, um, who many Greek and Jewish people were turning their allegiance to, they were accused of defying Caesar, the Roman Empire. Persecution got so intense that Paul and Silas had to flee. And we think that Paul was there for about two weeks, which from Paul's point of view was before he could see them fully planted in their faith. Usually when Paul had established a church, he would stay in that community for several weeks or months. And then Timothy comes to Paul with a report. And Paul then writes this letter after receiving the report. And the, the letter has two main movements, right? The first is a celebration of their faithfulness. The community had been more sufficiently grounded than you would normally expect in two weeks. And the second, which we read, is a challenge for them to keep growing. And we're going to focus on verses 16 to 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Jesus Christ for you. And here Paul uses maximum, right? They're short and they're to the point. Now this reminds me of when I got my school report. And it always seemed to be my science teacher that said this. Jessica is a hardworking and capable student who seeks to achieve high marks in all her work. However, Jessica often finds it hard to stay on task as she likes to chat and is disruptive to other classmates, right? And so the time came to go to school and walk through the, to the classroom and she'd be sitting in her chair to the right and she would go, 
good morning, Jessica. And I'm like, good morning, miss. And she knew, knows what she wrote. She knows I know what she wrote. And she's just waiting to see if I actually took heed of that sweet sentence that cost me a 20-minute lecture from my parents who are like, are you serious, Jessica? You're 16. And I'm like, someone had to make the class fun. But I say this, it's because that's why Paul uses maxims, right? 97% of society were illiterate. And so learning would be by hearing. And if it was important and to be remembered and recalled, it had to be short. And Paul thinks, Paul says these things, they're pillars of the Christian faith. These things just aren't practices, they're a disposition, they're an attitude. He says, there's a way that I want you to live. I want you to rejoice always. I want you to pray without ceasing. And I want you to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And we, those three uh, words are attached to three verbs. So always, without ceasing, without stopping, and in all circumstances. And when I read those, I think the only thing that I can do always, without stopping, and all circumstances is breathe. And you want me to rejoice, to pray, and to give thanks? And this kind of rejoicing that Paul's talking about is the kind of joy that's not dependent on external circumstances. The New Testament contains many exhortations for joyful living in the middle of Christian communities where persecution was and was always threatening. Joy rings through the New Testament. It was a characteristic yet of the Christian faith. Philippians 3.1, rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Yet when things get hard, don't go the way we want or we thought, our spirit isn't usually rejoicing, right? Even as a country, we aren't the best at these things. Our conversations usually begin with, have you seen the weather? I know, it's awful. And we're supposed to go to the caravan at the weekend, right? Or we don't get our Amazon delivery the next day before 3 p.m. We're cancelling Prime and agitated because the digital world that we live in, we expect and want instant gratification. I live in Macrofelt. And when I'm in Belfast seeing friends and about to go home, they do this face like, are you going back to Macrofelt? And I have to stop myself from going, I know, right? As if I have to get in my car and drive 40 minutes like any other normal person outside of Northern Ireland to go to my home where I have a bed and food and running water. Just last week, I um, was cleaning the floor and it was a lovely day. I was feeling very grateful, sun was shining. I thought, I'm going to earn some brownie points here for Jacqueline. So I hoover the floor, I seen the floor. It took me like an hour, right? Then mum comes in, my dad comes in, my granny comes in, then the dogs come in. All of a sudden, my floor is not clean. It's not the way that I wanted to. And either is my attitude, because I'm like, mum, are you serious? And she's like, what do you want me to do, Jessica? And I'm starting to bicker with my mum, who I'm trying to actually do something nice for her. The thing is, we're just not good at these things, right? Yet, it's the will of God for our lives. Secular studies have stated that joy is linked to personal well-being. Harvard Health released a study that two psychologists carried out on gratitude. In one study, they asked all participants to write a few sentences each week, focusing on particular topics. One group wrote about things they were grateful for that had occurred during the week. A second group wrote about daily irritations or things that had displaced them. And the third wrote about events that had, that had affected them with no emphasis on them being positive or negative. After 10 weeks, those who wrote about gratitude were more optimistic and felt better about their lives. Surprisingly, they exercised more and had fewer visits to the physicians than those who fo focused on source of, uh, sources of aggravation. 
Another researcher in this field um, tested the impact of various positive psychology interventions when compared with a controlled assignment of writing about early memories. When their week's assignment was to write and personally deliver a letter of gratitude to someone who had never been properly thanked for his or her kindness, participants immediately exhibited a huge increase in happiness scores. This impact was greater than that from any other intervention with benefits lasting for a month, right? These things are now proven to lead to a healthier, better quality of life. It's, it's as if secular psychologists are finally catching up on something that God has been saying to us all along. Praying without season. We read this, we think, is he serious? I have a job and kids. I don't have time to pray continually. That's all well and good for you, Paul. You were a missionary, right? I have nappies, homework, bath time, the grass to cut, go to the office, a mortgage to worry about. And the thing is, perhaps our understanding of prayer here is that we must go and sit in a quiet room by ourselves and spend a set time praying. And whilst we ought to do those and engage in those things, different types of prayer, confession, supplication, thanksgiving, intercession, here Paul's talking about a disposition. It's a way of being in fellowship with God. One commentator writes this, begin a walk of fellowship with the Lord, not only at seated times of prayer in which you bring all your needs to the Lord, but also the unbroken walk of communion, praying without ceasing. It's for the attitude and the desire of our heart to be with him and in his presence. And so here's the question for us this morning. How do we do this? How do we live this way. And there's three things that I want to touch on. In the first lockdown, when you were allowed to go out exercising, my dad started walking the sparrows. And then he comes to me and he's like, come on, will you walk with me? And he does that thing, like, come on, it'll be really good for you. You know, you get fit, you'll get strong. And I'm like, okay, he's right, get a bit stronger, great. So we go on our first walk. And I think, this walk in life, it's easy, right? I can do this. And dad and I have always had this competition between us to see who's the fittest. Dad is 56 and dad thinks he's 26. And so I kind of think it's my job to lovingly knock him down a few pegs. And so after the first one, he says, right, the next one, we're next week. It's a little bit harder. And I think, no problem, Robert, like I'm going to ace this. So go home and I'm going to buy all the gear. So I bought new shoes. I got my rucksack out, got my breathable layers. I got my walking, my socks. I got everything. I packed my bag and I was like, yes, my shoes arrive and I'm literally walking about the house breaking my shoes in being like just wait until he sees me go like he is going to be like whoa she is fit and it's going to be great and so then we arrive and we go out and there's people in the car park and they go to their car and they're all in their gear too and I'm like I'm one of them and I'm at this mountain that we see like we're going to do this and so we begin to walk and it's all great and then we get halfway and this is halfway I look up and there's just this vertical climb and I'm like Oh, no, I can't do this. I'm like, he, he, will, he will pester me. I will never hear the end of this. So I start to walk and I get halfway up the mountain and dad's just a wee bit ahead of me. And, and I stop and he looks wrong. He's like, why are you stopping? Like, you don't just stop in the middle of a vertical climb. You need to keep walking. And I'm like, come on, Jessica. And then I just stop. I'm like, I can't do this. And I'm like, dad, you go on ahead. I'll go back to the car. You can do it. And then he turns around and he comes closer to me and he goes, give, give me your hand. And I'm like, okay. And my 56-year-old dad walks 23-year-old me to the top of the mountain. Every step that my dad took, I took. Every point we got to another incline, he would say, deep breath, Jess. 
And I say this not to tell you of how unfit I was, but that's because what Paul is talking about right here, right at the center of this disposition is a dependence on him, an awareness of our need for him and his presence in our lives. We can try and muster up joy and gratitude. We can think that we have things all sorted out and yet when things get hard, our best practices and life management uh, tools and tips, they don't help us. They don't cut it. I had the best boots, the walking socks, the breathable layers, but if I didn't have my dad, I wouldn't get to the place where I wanted to go. Right at the heart of our relationship with Christ is an awareness of our need for him and our dependence on him. This way of living that Paul is calling us to comes from being in Christ and realizing that our deepest need is him. Leon Morris, one commentator, writes that continuing prayer is the continuing expression of our dependence on him for everything. Richard Foster says, the closer we come to the heartbeat of God, the more aware we are of our need for him and the more aware we are for our need for him to be conformed to Christ. To be a people who pray without ceasing, we need to be aware of our need for him and we need to depend on him. Paul isn't asking us something that he isn't living on himself, right? Paul knew what it was to rejoice and give thanks in the middle of difficult situations. The Jews wanted to kill him. He was arrested and imprisoned for two years before he awaited trials. Then he appealed to Caesar and on his way to Rome, he hit a storm and was shipwrecked in Malta before finally getting to Rome and being on house arrest for another two years. And he, under, he understood what it was to live a life right in the middle of adversary. And he, as he says to the church in Corinth, this life that we lived is marked as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And that's because for Paul, praying without ceasing, this way of walking in communion with the Lord and for his presence was as important as breathing. It's something he did daily and often. It was a continual habit of his life. Yes, he knew what it was to be sorrowful, to face pain and adversary, but he knew who was in his midst and that changed everything. And perhaps we think, I can't do that. I can't come to the Lord daily and often. I don't have time for that. But if we're honest, we don't really think twice about opening up Instagram or TikTok or Facebook to fulfill a need for instant gratification or as an escapism from whatever we are facing. And yet that often comes with the price of feeling more anxious, more empty and less joyful as these platforms try and orient our eyes on our culture and all the things that you supposedly need, the life you should be living instead of gazing upon him and becoming more aware of his presence and his goodness in our lives. I'm not saying that all use of social media is bad, but it's unhealthy when we continue, continually run to it daily and often to fulfill a need of, that only he can satisfy. Last year, an article was published on standing fast in the digital age. It says this, we underestimate the power of prayer. We deprioritize prayer. And social media steals from us the gaps of life we could use to pray. Instead of praying without ceasing, we tweet without ceasing. There's competition for the gaps of our life and social media too often wins out over prayer. Or as John Piper once said, one of the great uses of Twitter, Facebook and Instagram will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. It's about what we choose to give our time to. 
Or maybe it's not social media, right? Maybe life's just busy and you're always in a hurry. I'm talking to myself here when I say this. I I get there's always something to do or there's somewhere to be. And we seem to think that when life gets less busy, then I'll come to him dealing often, right? It'll be so much easier then. And we know that's not true. There's always something. It's just what we choose to make a priority. It starts right in the middle of whatever life looks right now. You see, Paul isn't asking us to have this disposition when it suits us. It's right in the middle of whatever life looks like right now. And it's great that we have family and friends to come to often, tell them about our day, lay out how we feel, tell them about that situation that's going on in your life. But Abba, Father, he wants intimacy too. He's the one right there in the midst of it with you. He's the one that can give you peace that surpasses all understanding. The one whose sovereign hand is working at all things for our good. And the one who says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. John Mark Coomer in Live No Lives writes this. The daily decision to rejoice, to cultivate a way of seeing our lives in God's good work, not through the lens of our phones, news app, or flesh, but through gratitude, celebration, and unhurried delight will over time form us into joyful, thankful people who deeply enjoy life with God and others. What starts as an act of the will eventually turns into our inner inner nature. What begins with a choice eventually becomes a character. What habits are you cultivating daily and often? Because eventually they become our character. It's what my older brother used to taunt me with, you are what you eat or you become what you gaze upon. You wanna be a more joyful, grateful person who's aware of his presence and goodness in our lives, then we need to make it a habit that we continually come to the only one who can sustain us. And the third thing is we need to persevere. One theologian, David May, says that the heart of rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks is a Christian spiritual disposition of persistence. It is a value which beats like a steady pulse in every activity of living in community and society. He then goes on to say that Roberta Bondi, who's a professor in theology, her description of a disposition of love could also describe what Paul expects. A disposition has to do with a chosen and cultivated long-term attitude of the heart. To pray without ceasing, to pray without stopping, we need to persevere. And Paul takes this straight from Jesus. Luke 18, Jesus tells the story of the persistent widow. It says this, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus sets up a contrast here, right? He uses a widow who was one of the most disenfranchised people in society. She was poorless. She has nothing. This, this widow, she has no man for, uh, for finances or to keep her. And she comes to this judge and all she has is persistence. 
And the judge says, I don't care about man, I don't care about God. But to get this woman to stop bothering me, I'll grant her justice. Here's what Jesus is saying. If this judge, who doesn't care about man or God, grants this lady justice because of her persistence, how much more will your father, who loves you and chose you, care about your situation and want to do something and speak to you about it when you come to him? At the same time, Jesus diagnoses our problem as to why we don't pray continually. He says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It's because we don't have the faith that God is good and is active and working in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Because if we actually did, it would change how we speak to him, right? And here's the thing. Situations in our life may not change to look like what we want them to. Personally, eight years on, I'm still praying for healing in my body. Have I been healed? No. Am I in pain? Yes. Have I seen other people healed? Yes. Does that mean that I stop believing that God is good and is actively working in my life? No. Recently, a well-known pastor, his wife passed away. And the week after, he preached a sermon and he said this, the backsliding heart will always judge God by what he didn't do. But those who run with tenderness for who he is will always define him by what he has said, what he has promised, and what he has done. His character and his goodness does not rest on the outcome of our situations. God doesn't promise that this life will be easy. In John 16, 33, Jesus tells the disciples that he is going back to the Father. And after a little while, you will see me, he says, very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. I have told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. Let me finish by saying this, that Paul roots this disposition in, God, in God's will for our life in Jesus Christ, right? In verse 18, Paul says, for it's the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Here's what he's saying. Not only is it in Christ that the will of God is revealed, but it is in him, the deity of Christ, the power is given to us to live accordingly to that will. Christ is our mediator. It's what John was talking about last week. It's the message of the gospel, right? Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He took our sin upon him. He died the death that we deserve to die. He conquered death. He rose again for our salvation, for our sins to be forgiven, and so that we can return to the intimacy with God that we were created for. Before Jesus was crucified, he said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, that it's better for you that I go because if I don't go, the Holy Spirit, the helper, will not come to you. And then after when he was resurrected, he appeared to his disciples and he said, just as the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. And he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Yes, this world is incredibly broken. Yes, our lives are full of pain and yes we will face hard things but the truth is that God is alive and he's working he hasn't just left us 
He's given us the Holy Spirit, our helper, until the day that Jesus returns, right? That is why we can rejoice always, because he is coming back. That is why we pray without ceasing, because he's alive and he's in our midst and he's working. And that is why we can give thanks in all circumstances, because he is who he says he is. We are in the interim what we so often talk about as the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. We are living in the New Testament, right? The time before revelation when he will come back and wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things will have passed away. We have a hope that he is coming back and until he comes back and makes all things new, he hasn't stopped working. That's the truth that Paul puts his hope in, the hope of Jesus Christ. Paul closes this unit of his letter in verse 24. And he says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Do what? Philippians 1, 6. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He is who he says he is. Do you believe that this morning? When we grasp this truth, the hope of Jesus' return and the truth that we have an active, living, present, good and gracious God in our midst, it changes how we speak to him. We become more aware of his presence and he gives us faith and hope and joy which prayer and gratitude burn off.